Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. An update on everything we said COVID-19 related yesterday. Good news for restaurants. And do you think it's a wise idea for the liberals not to build any more highways in Ontario? It's on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I'm loving the extra hour of sunlight every day. Although, I'm starting to develop a masked tan line. Uh-oh, this can't be good. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. You can send us an via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com. All right. Uh, lots of news on the uh, vaccine front. Let's play you this clip uh, on the latest from AstraZeneca. Public confidence in the vaccine has dropped amid questions about its effectiveness and safety after announcing yesterday that the U.S. study showed the shot provides strong protection for adults of all ages. AstraZeneca's Mene Pangalos envisioned a confidence booster. I do hope it puts to bed any doubts about the vaccine efficacy. But the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases then released an unusual statement, saying independent monitors are concerned outdated information may have given an in complete view of the vaccine's efficacy. Agency director Anthony Fauci tells ABC it's an unforced error, one that could reinforce doubt about what he says is likely a good vaccine. He's urging AstraZeneca to issue the correct data. Sagar Magani, Washington. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He's a health policy expert and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Ahmad, this is very bizarre because yesterday we were just talking about what great news because uh, AstraZeneca had been approved by the U.S. and showed a little bit more of an efficacy rate than what we were uh, we first originally thought. Now, Dr. Fauci coming out and questioning this and 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 saying that some outdated information uh, may have been used. Can you add any clarity to this whatsoever? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is that this is not a question on the safety of the vaccine. So that's very important to make clear. So Dr. Fauci is not saying that there are issues around the safety of the vaccine in relation to the blood clots and the news that were emerging recently. What he's he's saying, though, is that according uh, to the Department of Science, and specifically here the Department of Data and Safety Monitoring Board, that AstraZeneca released uh, efficacy, and this time we're talking here about the effectiveness of the vaccine, based on older data rather than the most recent up-to-date data. And he's asking them that they cannot do this, and they need to go back to the Data and Safety Monitoring Board to make sure they follow correct procedures and release the most up-to-date information around the efficacy of the vaccine. He did make it clear, too, that He's not talking about the safety of the vaccine. That's not the question in place here. He's urging just every all the companies, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca in this case, to really make sure they release the most up-to-date data that is available so the public is um, you know, reassured on its safety. And when asked, uh, yesterday, Dr. Fauci, when asked about why he's making this statement, he said that you know we don't want to be put in a place where the public is questioning uh, why certain data was released and not others. And so I think he's trying to make sure that they are transparent from their end. But I agree with you, Scott. I think this doesn't fare well with AstraZeneca. It's already been, you know, having some negative press. And, and this just adds to it a, a very unfortunate situation for probably the most effective vaccine we have. So would this be on AstraZeneca for not making their messaging more clear? Or is this on different testing? No, I would put the I would put the blame on AstraZeneca. Unfortunately, I think that, and they've admitted it. I mean, they quickly jumped uh, and, and released a statement and said, "Yes, we will comply with what Dr. Fauci has said, and we will make sure that we release the data." And they did make a statement to say that when they review the most recent up-to-date data, it actually does correlate with what they released that was that was based on outdated data and just to make it clear for the public listening to us right now we're not talking about data from years ago we're just talking about february so dr fauci is just saying you know since you you've released that data you've had more recent ones and those are the ones you should be basing your press releases on and so it's really more of a you know, uh, one, uh, the, the federal agency that's in charge of making sure that vaccines are, uh, the data around vaccines up to date 
conversation with a pharmaceutical company uh, and telling them basically a slap on the wrist to say, hey, don't be releasing press releases that are not the most up-to-date data and make sure you go through us first so that we can verify your information. That's really what has stake here. And it's a learning lesson for other pharmaceutical companies who are watching this very closely, like Pfizer and Moderna, that when you release information about vaccines, the scientific board uh, in the country should really be the ones looking at this and releasing that information with you rather than you doing it on your own. So uh, has any of the messaging changed with the Canadian government or Canada on this? Does this affect us in any way? No, as far as I can tell from today, it doesn't seem like this has really affected us in Canada because, you know, again, we go back to the basic premises. I mean, we, you know, we check the safety of the vaccine. We wouldn't have approved it in Canada if our health agencies haven't really examined the data thoroughly. And based on what Health Canada is repeatedly telling us, their stance has never changed. AstraZeneca is a safe vaccine, hence why we never pause. Uh, the rollout plan for AstraZeneca. And on the contrary, we've actually increased the rollout. I mean, we see other countries in Europe uh, that's actually suffering because their vaccination rates are plummeting. I mean, they, they are not vaccinating well in Europe. Europe is doing really bad when it comes to their vaccination. And part of the reason is they paused AstraZeneca. Now they're having a very hard time resuming it, even though the evidence they've concluded, the European countries concluded that there's no risk with AstraZeneca. But because they paused it, now they're, they're in a very bad shape in terms of their vaccinations rollout. That's not the case in Canada. And we've been assured over and over again that we studied the data very closely. Our experts looked at it. And when they confirmed that it was safe for us to use in Canada, it is safe for us to use in Canada. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Doctor, how literally this changes from one day to the next mm-hmm. as, as you and I have this conversation. But again, let's emphasize that this was not on or has nothing to do with the safety aspect uh, of AstraZeneca. Another thing that, that, again, we've talked about many times is delaying that second dose. Uh, uh, information coming out from, I guess, uh, Dr. Mona Niemer, uh, Chief Science Advisor, uh, very much questioning the extension of the second dose. Uh, two, four months. We know that in Ontario, long-term care, uh, they didn't take that rule. They, they, they want to get, uh, the long-term care, uh, homes and those in the, those vulnerable situations vaccinated twice. Uh, but those seniors who are, you know, 80 plus that are living in their own home or what have you, uh, they are starting to get vaccinated. But again, the second dose four months away. Um, uh, this chief science advisor saying that she's questioning the efficacy, how how effective it is after that period of time. Anything to add to that whatsoever, doctor? I think we're going to continuously hear this debate about how long it can go from one dose to another. And especially now with the variants and the need for a possible booster shot, uh, I, I suspect that the conversation around the duration between one vaccine and another will happen for a very long time. Um, and maybe that will change once Johnson & Johnson is uh, available because that's a one-shot only. Again, we might need a booster shot given the variants. We know that right now. We know that it's looking like booster shots are on the horizon for us. Uh, I think the focus right now is to get as much of the population vaccinated as possible, and that's why the strategy has been to use one dose and delay the second dose as far as possible. Um, your thoughts on the va- uh, variants? It seems now that the messaging is getting quite strong. Uh, there, there's a, a press conference that's going to be held in about 10 minutes' time in regard to our region, the Hamilton uh, region and such, and, uh, and where we are sitting. Um, what are your thoughts as far as... Um, this data that is coming in, obviously, the the confusion in and around uh, uh, some of these vaccines. Uh, what are your what What are your thoughts about where we are today? I think you know I'm hopeful that you know more and more people. I mean, even in my, my own immediate circles of people above the age of sixty, uh, there are more people getting vaccinated overall. I find, uh, and that's really positive. I think there's been a lot of pressure on the government. Uh, to really, you know, aggressively roll out their vaccination. And that's going to pay, pay dividends for us. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the more we get people vaccinated, the better our immunity and our ability to fight COVID-19. And then then we could tackle sort of that race between the variants and the vaccinations. The variants are alarming. Everybody's saying that over and over again. We are concerned about the variants. They seem to be highly infectious and they can transmit quite fast within communities. So getting ahead of the variants is very important, hence why, you know, we haven't really opened everything up yet. We're still very much calculated, slow and steady is 
the theme, you know, progressively move towards a place where we can open things slowly, just because we don't want to get to a point where we open up things and then the variants take control of our health system. I mean, that is the goal here, not to overburden our health system. So I think my opinion on the matter is that, you know, a calculated, slow and steady approach is the way forward. And while we do that, we should be maintaining an aggressive rollout of our vaccination plans across Canada. Uh, we are hearing that uh, this is starting to affect more younger people. I saw a stat 90% of those in ICU are under the age of 65. We talked about this yesterday as the older uh, population has been vaccinated, the third wave, we may start to see uh, more younger people. Uh, what are your thoughts that, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure what the ICU numbers are right now. Perhaps you could shed some light on that as well uh, on how we're coping with this. But uh, with 90% of those being under 65, what are your thoughts? Well, my, my, my immediate concern is that the younger population tends to be uh, more likely to, uh, you know, socially gather in big numbers. I mean, that's what we saw last year, right? And so my concern is that now we're seeing that COVID-19 is actually affecting the younger demographic here uh, below the age of 40 uh, a lot more than it did before. It becomes really concerning to me about how do we get that message across to the younger population to say, you know, please remember what happened last year. I mean, I remember just, I was pulling up some news excerpts from last year and I was reminded about how many outbreaks happened at parks in Toronto and the region uh, and beaches where people were gathering in large numbers. And that was, this is the demographic that thought they were immune to COVID-19. So I think this new evidence that's telling us about the COVID-19 and the youth population is alarming and it should be a strong message to everybody in that age demographic to really uh, practice public health interventions and, and to take this matter now really seriously because it's, you're no longer you know, in air quotations, immune to COVID-19, as we saw at one point to a relatively to a relative extent. And right now, we know that it can affect pretty much any uh, age population, and now it's affecting the youth in a bigger uh, uh, matter than it did last year. We have touched on this before. A caller wants to know, in the future, COVID shots, will, will they be like the annual flu shot? And if they will be able to be administered at the same time or even within the same shot? I suspect so. I suspect that we're going to move towards a place where like flu shots uh, and COVID-19 shots would be given around the same time. Uh, and actually, it would be really, really interesting to see how many people will be taking the flu shots because, you know, we didn't have the highest rate of people taking the flu shots. And, and you know, COVID-19 might change all that. And people now seem hopefully convinced that vaccines are important because we don't get into play, uh, situations like this pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty about our behavior in the future and, and, and how we respond to the need to take vaccines. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a, a massive shift in the way we communicate science, in the way people are educated about it, and about our ability to make those decisions that affect our health and the health of others. Uh, you know, we are definitely at a turning point in history, um, and I think time will just tell us where we t- tend to go in terms of our belief in the uh, efficacy of vaccines. Where are the hospitals at this point in ICUs? How are we holding up? The, the early data is saying that there are concerns that ICU units might become full as the variant becomes more rampant in our communities. So far, we haven't heard about a complete collapse of the system, as you might recall it. There's a bit of a strain because the youth population is increasing in numbers in terms of their infection with COVID-19. But as far as I can tell from this morning, it doesn't seem to be like there is this massive collapse in our health system at this point. However, I mean, all health system leaders are urging the public to really maintain vigilance and to keep it to stay on track for now so that we avoid that collapse uh, to happen. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy graduate, health policy expert, rather. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks for the clarity. I know it's a moving, uh, it's a very fluid story, but uh, thanks for keeping us up to date. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks. Good news for those in the restaurant industry. The Ontario government has confirmed restaurant workers will be included in phase two of the province's COVID-19 vaccine rollout. The full list for eligibility was released back on March 5th. Phase two was divided into two groups. The first with teachers, childcare workers, and people working in food manufacturing or agriculture sectors. The second included high-risk retail workers, such as those in grocery stores and farmers. 
pharmacies. Restaurants Canada has been outspoken on why employees in its industry would not be included and tweeted Monday that has since changed. The second phase for shots is expected to roll out April to July. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Let's bring in James Rylett, Vice President and Central, uh, Vice President of the Central Canada Division with Restaurants Canada and is with us now. James, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. So this has to be good news. Uh, you got to be excited about this. Yes, it is. It, you know, it shows that the government was willing to listen to us and, uh, and fix this oversight. And it's really good news for the uh, employees in the restaurant industry that it gives them some peace of mind that they'll, uh, they'll be able to uh, be vaccinated along with other similar employees. So what does this mean? How will this change protocol? How will this change what we experience in a restaurant? Um, I don't think it changes much at all. I, I think it's just another uh, part of uh, um, helping the employees to feel safer. Um, we, we'll still have the same uh, uh, PPE requirements. We'll still have the same uh, um, what what happens in the restaurant will all be the same. I think no one's going to um, relax at all. Um, again, it's just peace of mind, and, and it allows uh, restaurant employees to to know that they they can more safely uh, serve the public. Do you see this uh, helping ease restrictions at all? Um, I, hopefully, eventually, but you know, in the short term, we, there's a lot of steps between now and, and easing restrictions. More, I think, uh, when the government looks at everything and looks at the numbers and. And when the vaccine starts to take hold and bring down the numbers, I think that's when we'll see restrictions uh, coming down as well. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is an ongoing debate, obviously, and boy, boy, we hear it. You know, every single day, you have you know a group of people saying uh, that we got to shut this down. Uh, these new variants are on the way; they're increasing. Uh, they're affecting more people under the age of 65 yet there's the other side that are saying you know we got to get back to normal uh vaccines are arriving we need guidelines on on how to open up as opposed to chatter of 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 closing down i mean this has been a a high wire balancing act since the beginning james how how do you how do you gauge where we are now um you know i I think everybody's a little bit right (laughs) i think uh the biggest problem we're facing right there and right now is there's such a uh, people are so worn down by the pandemic that uh, a lot of people that would never break the rules before are starting to uh, push the envelope and and meeting more friends and uh, you know I, I think what we saw on Friday and throughout the weekend was people just saying okay I I, I can pre- at least pretend to, that we're normal a little bit and if you go out and have a burger with your family you're still with the same people but at least you're you're in a d- different location you can pretend uh, things are, are okay again and you can enjoy somebody else's cooking i think little things like that are going to make the difference as as we go into this home stretch and we try and get people uh um you know to focus on uh, on defeating this virus not just uh trying to open up it short term and hope hope for the best so in regard to restaurants, does this mean everybody in the restaurant uh, will be vaccinated? Is it just frontline servers? or How does this apply? Uh, I haven't, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of details on, on um, how, who will, who will apply, how they'll prove what they do in a restaurant, etc. Um, and I don't think any, any group has, has seen that level of detail yet. We'll continue to work with the government and, uh, and, provide our best counsel to uh, make sure that this runs as smoothly as possible. I'm sure there'll be some bumps along the way, but uh, as we've seen, they're, they're willing to listen. And if, if there's any oversight or if there's a ways we can do it better, um, we'll definitely work with them. What can we do now? Because we've seen easing of restrictions, which has been some of the concern as we see variants inclu- uh, increase. Some are saying, well, why are we opening things up? Uh, as the, as the uh, weather gets warmer and such, what does this mean? How, how, how are these changes uh, going to roll out? Um, well, it all depends on the, on the area you're in. But what, what you're going to see is, is people are allowed to get out and get about. Uh, this is what we've seen in other provinces is that uh, restaurants have been part of the solution, especially B.C. They've never closed restaurants and, uh, and they just imposed uh, strict gu- uh, restrictions that uh, helped people to uh, 
still get out responsibly, still be in a in a situation where things were overseen by someone else, and uh, it was a lot more um, responsible than people having having private home home uh, gatherings. And we saw in, in BC it worked very well. Their numbers actually came down after Christmas, where ours skyrocketed. So we think it's a responsible thing to do, and, and restaurants are excited to be part of the solution. How did BC keep restaurants open through this? Um, they just they brought in restrictions when they needed to. Uh, they were one of the first ones to bring in the restriction that only people in your bubble uh, could be could be seated with you. Um, they did that early. Um, they brought in the early closings uh, early. Well, uh, I guess everyone brought in the early closings similar times. But when they when they identified a problem, they tried to address the problem rather than simply shutting everything down. And uh, and uh, it seems to have worked. Uh, their their numbers did stay fairly stable and actually came down. And uh, um, that's what we had hoped for from the beginning uh, when this framework was first brought in by the government. So uh, we're glad that they they listened and uh, hopefully it, hopefully they'll work. It'll work and uh, we'll see numbers start to stabilize. Uh, Hamilton in the red zone with a lot of Southern Ontario, other than those that are in the gray, which is Toronto, uh, Peel and, and such. Uh, so just to, to clarify, what can we do in restaurants in the red zone? In the red zone, you can have up to, uh, uh, 50% of capacity and, and maximum of 50 people in a restaurant. Um, you still have to have the, the same social, the same distance between tables, etc. Um, Staff, if you haven't been to a restaurant in a while, you'll notice that staff are, have a lot more PPE than um, maybe you saw it last summer. They'll have face masks. They'll have eye coverings. Um, this is all the the uh, standards that are, are required to just make sure everyone's safe. Um, you'll be asked if you're all in the same household. Um, so you'll, you'll notice differences, but hopefully the experience will still be uh, um, positive. We're also hope, hopeful that the customers understand that, you know, this restaurants are just trying to do their best. They're trying to keep everyone safe. And uh, if everything's not as smooth as it used to be, uh, understand what's going on and uh, that they're uh, all trying to serve the same or go, uh, work towards the same goal. So what about outdoors in the red zone? Patio season obviously coming, weather's getting warmer. How will that affect uh, outdoors in the red zone? Uh, outdoors is uh, in red is the same as gray. It's uh, you, you can you have to have the the distance between tables. Um, there's no restrictions on how many people on a patio. It all depends on the size. But as long as there's a size enough uh, room between tables and uh, enough room for the staff to safely get through, um, there really isn't a size restriction on patios. So you'll see the same. It'll be similar to last summer, except as I mentioned, the additional PPE. Um, you'll have to register. You'll have to uh, uh, give your contact information so that there can be contact tracing uh, if there's a problem. And, uh, you know, other than that, hopefully, as we saw this weekend, there's, uh, uh, people are really eager and uh, excited to get back out. And what about in the gray zone, both indoors and outdoors? Uh, gray zone, there's no indoor dining allowed yep. at all. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that won't change. Uh, right. in gray, but they are now have the option of outdoor. Yes, they, you are allowed to have outdoor dining now, which you hadn't before. Um, the outdoor dining in gray will, is similar to red. It's, uh, again, distanced and, uh, the same PPEs. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, the weather will cooperate. It definitely did this week. It looks like it'll get a little colder, but, um, restaurants are, are really excited to be, uh, serving people again and i think the customers are are excited to be out again so um you know i think you'll see people bringing heaters out again so that uh, when it does turn a little bit colder you know it still is march so um they'll they'll be able to leave their patios open it'll be similar i think it'll be a similar feel to the fall when uh, they were trying to extend the season as far as possible so patio season going to be a saving grace for a lot of these places this year I think so. It's, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, if nothing else, it gets people back into contact with their customers and, uh, and shows, reminds them why they, why they're doing this crazy business. And, uh, um, hopefully it 
gets their mind off the huge debt that they've accumulated. And I think a lot of people will be looking at it and say, okay, there is a light at the tunnel and I uh, ended the tunnel and I can come through this and uh, hopefully stay open and continue to uh, do what I love. How will this change how restaurants operate in the future? Um, well, I, I think you're you're going to continue to see uh, increased safety precautions. I think nobody wants to get in another situation as as we saw with COVID nineteen. It, it took a hold. It took hold quickly, and I think um, we won't let our guard down on on and the new safety precautions. I think you'll see a lot of those stay. Um, I think you're going to see uh, simpler menus, uh, uh, pared down menus, um, as as it just makes it easier for. Um, the operators as well as the customers. So I think you'll see things like that. But you'll also, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of changes that we just don't know yet. This is a very resilient industry, and the people that work in it are, are very, uh, they have a lot of good ideas. So there's probably a lot of ideas out there that uh, I've never imagined, but uh, will take the industry by storm. You know, we've certainly seen how the patio experience has evolved. Many said, you know, Canada was way behind in this sort of thing compared to other parts uh, of the world. It'll be fascinating to see what different options come out of this and and how that changes the experience moving forward. For sure. It's it's going to be a interesting time. Uh, I think we'll have some some uh, growing pains when people are well people are still trying to get back to profitability but after that once people start investing in this industry again uh i think it we will see some exciting times doesn't seem to be any loss in the interest though everybody wants to get there when they can no if anything i think people are now seeing you know everyone thought that they could cook and they spent the last year realizing they can't and uh And so, you know, so they're, they're excited to get back out and, and, you know, and socialize, even if you can't, um, even if you can't go from table to table, at least you're out with people and that, that makes all the difference. So, um, I think people, once you lose something, you, 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 uh, realize what you've lost. So I think we'll see the industry bounce back pretty quickly and, uh, it, it'll be a good days. What about uh, delivery services? Are they here to stay? Will we see that uh, perhaps taper off as these restaurants open up? Well, obviously, it'll taper off a bit because people won't be forced to use them. But, you know, it was the largest growing sector of our industry before the pandemic hit. So we don't expect that that will um uh, we con- expect that to continue at the rate it was before the pandemic hit. So, uh, you know, there will be some tapering off, but I, that's an industry that will just continue to grow. Um, hopefully we'll find ways of making, making it cheaper for, uh, for restaurants to use the third party apps or, or even find a way to, uh, something different than the t- third party apps. But, um, you know, it's, it's a love hate relationship they have with it, but it, it does, uh, provide additional revenue and, uh, it was a growing uh, trend, so I think we'll see that continue, and uh, you'll see things like ghost kitchens continue and uh, and other uh, things that were already growing in the industry. Um, we've certainly heard and, and seen that businesses have failed, and some have gone under. Uh, some, you know, we're, we're seeing the papered-up windows and such. Uh, as a result of the global pandemic, once we do get the the, the, the clear skies, whenever that is, and, and everyone is vaccinated, will we see a whole pile of new restaurants start to emerge again? Do you think that the ones that were closed will come back in some form? Um, yes and no. I think uh, initially, after it comes back and the and the government uh, subsidies start to fade off. I think a lot of people are just holding on because of the government subsidies. And once they have they re- have to reckon with the debt that they've uh, accumulated, you'll start to see more clothes. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, that that's just an unfortunate reality. But as we saw in, in other times of uh, great disruption, such as the uh, 
the economic uh, turn downturn in the early 2000s. Um, you know, people come back. People uh, want to invest in this industry. People want to be part of this industry. So uh, whether the whether the physical locations reopen, which is usually the easiest thing, is someone that wants to open a restaurant that uh, goes to a physical location that has already closed. But whether it's that or somebody opens a new location, I, I do believe that the uh, we will um, be back and you'll start to see um, new restaurants open and new format, new uh, styles of restaurant open. And hopefully it'll just open doors to... Uh, things we hadn't experienced before what about franchises versus the mom and pops how have they fared through this um franchises definitely uh, have fared a little better um that well depending on the the brand uh quick service has done a little better than than sit down service a lot better i guess um but uh um the franchisee franchise models uh, they've done a little better. I think a lot of the franchisors, uh, the big companies, have reduced their fees. They've done whatever they can, uh, provided some funding to, to franchi- individual franchisees to keep them afloat. That being said, most uh, fran- almost all franchises have told us that they will be closing locations. So there will be some uh, right-sizing on that uh, end as well, but uh, not as much as the... Uh, Independence, where we expect about fifty percent of independents are in danger of going under. Um, and so, so obviously, good news with restaurant workers being part of of phase two. Uh, I guess, like anything, it depends on delivery of vaccines. Has there been any sort of timeline for for your industry as to when this will start? I guess we're seeing April for possibly phase two. Any more information on that for your industry? Yeah, it's hard to say. We, we're being told that uh, phase two will start in April, um, but you know, even uh, we're happy to be on the list. But uh, you know, and rightly so, we're we're down uh, down on the list uh, quite a ways. So uh, you know, we we don't think we should be ahead of a lot of others. But uh, yeah. um, you know, happy to be in the same tranche as uh, retail, etc. But as I said, it's it's down lower on the list. So I don't know when we'll get there. Uh, hopefully by May, we're um, we're in it and again everything depends on how quickly uh um vaccines can come and uh as other cu- countries get ramped up and there's more supply that uh is is available then hopefully we can uh we can get these timelines down even further james rylett's been with us vice president of the central canada division with restaurants canada good news ontario restaurant workers uh, will get a covid 19 vaccine in phase two uh, although uh, farther down the list than uh, than perhaps they wanted to be. But again, that's the situation when we have a shortage of vaccine. James, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You have a great day. Here is today's daily commentary. It seems there is still more focus and blame on the provinces in Canada's scarce vaccine supply rollout than there is with the federal government whose sole responsibility it is to import the life-saving vaccine. It is also hard to believe that some are still accusing the Ontario government of keeping vaccine on shelves. They can't seem to understand the vaccine is spoken for. Let me try to explain supply-side management as told to me by several business professors on this show. In a strong, healthy supply chain system, the product comes in in a steady stream. That has not been the case. The product is then stored on a shelf or warehoused, and then it is quickly removed and sent to the next phase of the supply chain, which in this case is a jab in the arm. In a strong, healthy supply chain, there are always vaccines on a shelf until distribution. If there are no vaccines on the shelf for the next phase or next day, in this case the jab, the entire system grinds to a halt, as it did with toilet paper last year. There should always be vaccine on a shelf. That is the sign of a strong system. If there is not, everything stops. And in our case, that means the shutting of another large vaccination clinic due to lack of product. Can we now focus on the real issue, getting more vaccine into Canada? It has always been and continues to be a supply issue. I'm Scott Thompson. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talked uh, a couple of days ago about an uh, interesting story about CP Rail agreeing to buy Kansas City Southern, a uh, line which will take CP Rail uh, right down through the United States and into Mexico. Here is a report from David Bowles of Global News. American. The deal is subject to regulatory approval, which CP expects to be completed by mid-2022. The two companies say the deal will generate over $8 billion in revenue based on 2020 figures, while being the first railroad to connect Canada, the United States of America, and Mexico. Calgary will remain the company's global headquarters, Kansas City, Missouri, the U.S. headquarters, with CP saying its U.S. offices right now in Minneapolis-St. Paul, continuing to be an important base of operations. David Bowles, Global News. All right, let's bring in Ian Lee, professor with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yep, thank you. Yes, now, we, we initially brought you in yesterday to talk about this, and then we got chatting about supply chain, which an yep. argument is still going on today, uh, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, but we uh, initially had you scheduled to talk about this. Talk about this rail line. I, you know, in that report we played, I, I found it funny that this was the first direct line to link all three of these countries you think that would have been done by now uh you would have thought so um uh but better late than never the the logic driving this i think is i mean there's two separate but related variables um the the new nafta um which is what i call the revised nafta that trump did uh partway through late uh, through his administration is is i think it's creating new opportunities and so that's the first reason. And so the uh, the transportation system is the backbone of the economy. People may not realize this, but trucking and rail and airlines in the states are about a trillion dollars, which is a staggering amount of money. You know, the American economy is twenty three trillion. So one trillion of that is logistics, railroads, trucks, airplanes, and so it shows you how important transportation is to move stuff around, whether it's spare parts, whether it's inventory feeding into the next stage in the supply chain, but the supply chains and transportation logistics are intimately intertwined and interconnected. And just as a sort of a side comment, because I think it's important, because I have traveled a huge amount in many developing countries in the last 30 years teaching. One thing I've noted is noticed over and over is that in the most successful countries, the wealthiest countries, the high income countries, I'm talking Canada, the United States, Germany, France, Europe, the transportation systems are very, very efficient. And there's probably some people thinking out there, what's he talking about? I had to stand in line for a ticket. Uh-uh. Go to a developing country. Believe me. Go to a developing country, and then you can see what I'm talking about, where the transportation logistics have huge holes. I mean by that there's uh, huge inefficiencies. Uh, They don't connect all the time. Uh, They don't interoperate uh, well. And uh, it is just absolutely essential that the logistics transportation system work seamlessly. We saw it a year ago. In fact, I think I talked to you at the time when there was that holdup by protests of the rail system in Canada. We saw how devastating it was, grocery stores running out of food. Um, And, and, you know, most of the time we don't even think about it. We don't notice it because it just works seamlessly. You know, the trucks go down the 401 or down the interstates, you know, and the railroads run along and they do their thing and we just don't think about it. But everything you see in that store or that restaurant or that restaurant chain came in either on a railroad to a local depot uh, and then on a truck, or came directly from the head office or the supply center on a truck, and were absolutely dependent for the physical distribution of stuff on the logistics network. So what they're doing in this merger is extending it to integrate Mexico into uh, the the North American economy. Uh, here I am sidetracking you again, Ian. Where do highways fit into this? And the reason that I ask, and, and again, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't warn you about this, but uh, the Ontario Liberal leader talking about uh, the first thing they'll do is kill Highway 413, which is something that uh, the the uh, provincial government is talking about. I remember a long time ago Dalton McGinty saying, we're not interested in building any more highways. Unfortunately, we are where we are now, and, and that didn't seem to solve any problems because 
because I, I don't see any high-speed rail lines or anything anywhere improving anything other than the odd uh, transportation project in the odd city. So where do highways fit into this? Um, I have uh, been fascinated by politicians making these statements uh, over the last few years, uh, the last several years, five, ten years. And, and, you know, politicians claim all the time, you know, that they're evidence-based. And yet, when you start looking at a particular subject they're talking about, you realize they don't know what they're talking about. I'm being very blunt and very accurate. The vast majority of goods in Canada and States moves by truck on highways. Trucks don't fly through the air, um, and uh, they drive on roads. It just amazes me that you can say such a statement that we're not going to build highways or we're going to cancel highways before they're even uh, started or tested or any sort of environmental uh, work done on them. When, again, are we not a growing nation here? Yes, we are because of something I support, and I think most Canadians support, we support immigration. And that's why the United States and Canada are the only two countries really in the uh, OECD that are really growing in absolute numbers. Every three years, we bring in to Canada one new Ottawa. Ottawa's a million people. We bring in a million people into our country. That's why Canada's population continues to grow. That's why the American population continues to grow. We both, both countries have, have a long, long, long history of bringing in immigrants. And we are growing in absolute terms. Many countries are abs- actually shrinking. I know that sounds bizarre, but over the next 50 years, Italy is forecast to shrink. Japan is going to shrink. Russia, there was a story just this week, which I already knew about because it's been studied quite a bit. Russia is shrinking. Apparently, Putin is tearing out his hair. Uh, the birth rate has collapsed, and the, uh, the death rate, the mortality, the life expectancy is declining, and they have no immigration. And so many countries, China, people think, think, oh, no, there's one country that's growing. China is forecast to dr- contract dramatically because of the delayed impact of the one-child policy. Canada and the U.S., are the only two major countries that are forecast to grow dramatically, dramatically. And more people, this is why I've been so uh, critical of governments on their uh, housing policy, saying let's restrict the growth of the urban boundary in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver. Well, you know, we're bringing in more and more people, and they've got to be housed. And we need highways to drive to deliver all of the stuff that all of us consume every day when we go to Loblaws or to Metro or to Sobeys or Canadian Tire or Home Depot. Every last thing that you see on a shelf in every last store, whether it's a corner store, came there by truck on roads. I mean, we're absolutely dependent on in road infrastructure to move stuff. Railroads, there's a, there's a division of labor between trucking and railroads. The trucks, the railroads are delivering the heavy, bulky stuff, uh, you know, uh, iron ore, uh, steel, uh, heavy stuff that isn't that high value. You can't put, you know, a ton of steel on an airplane. It's just too exp- frightfully expensive, whereas you can put a lot of microchips from uh, Intel on an airplane because each, each microchip is worth $1,000. And it, it would be lucky to weigh two ounces. So it has very high value. Something with a high value and a low weight you can put on airplanes. But a lot of products are lower value and heavier weight. The heavier the weight, the more likely it will go on a railroad and on a rail, by rail. Most stuff, though, in North America, I don't just mean food, most of anything is transported by trucks. I, my students have finished doing in their caps, strategy capstone, uh, they were doing... Um, um, uh, Old Dominion trucking, and they had some of the macro statistics on trucking, and I think it's uh, 85, 90% of all the goods in the United States, and it's a similar figure for Canada, travel by truck, because it's very cheap, notwithstanding they use diesel, and it's not good for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that. But, you know, they go point to point. And I mean by that, you can load up a warehouse, uh, truck at a depot in Chicago and have it go straight to Toronto to the depot. Whereas railroads can only go from one railroad terminal, as you know, to another railroad terminal, and then you have to unload them, offload them, and put them onto a truck to take them to their final destination. Trucks can drive to the final destination. They can roll right up to the McDonald's at a specific location and offload, or Tim Hortons, or Burger King, or Starbucks. And that's what they do. And, and trucks, are, uh, uh, roads are absolutely essential. So I don't, really don't know what's going through the minds of these politicians who say, you know, who are so cavalier 
about the importance of roads. I, I hear politicians here in Ottawa saying we're spending too much on, on Somerville, even though it's only a tiny, tiny percentage of our, of our budget in Ottawa, $100 million out of $4 billion in the city of Ottawa, and they complain about we're spending too much on, on, on maintenance of the roads. And yet the roads are absolutely essential. And contrary to the mythology that we're all going to be driving bicycles, and we've been building bicycle paths left, right, and center here, I go down the road every day, and the bicycle paths are empty. And in the summer, yes, for four months of the year, you'll see, you know, a small number of bikes out there, but nothing compared to the number of cars and trucks on the road. And that's just again, I, I I couldn't believe years ago, and I don't know why this clip sticks in my head. I remember I can even see him saying this, Dalton McGinty, we're not interested in building any roads. Right. And you think how long he has been out of power, and how things have slowly, slowly grinded to a halt, especially in the Golden Horseshoe. I just. Uh, yeah. I don't know how you can say that, and I don't know how, if you're a business, how you react to that. Uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I remember when he said that, and I too was just simply gobsmacked. Uh, and it, it, you know, it really because I mean, things have only gotten worse. They've only gotten worse. Which is one reason I say this very respectfully to the people in Toronto. But I tell my friends, oh my goodness, I couldn't live in Toronto. The congestion is so brutal. And, it uh, is. You know, and they say, well, that's the argument for transit. But, the, you know, they, they don't realize and, uh, uh, that there's two separate problems with transit. And I'm not against transit, let's be clear. It's just that transit works on a hub and spoke. You have lots of lines coming in from all the different disparate suburbs into the downtown. Whether it's in Ottawa, Toronto, London, England, doesn't matter. They all work the same. They, if you look at a map of a tra- mass transit system in a big city, they have all these uh, uh, you know, spurs coming in from the into the center, and that's great. That's wonderful if you're going from the burbs to the downtown. The problem is, eighty percent of us don't live in the core in the downtown. We live out in the burbs, and uh, something like and I've seen the figures on this. That's data. Something like seventy or eighty percent of our trips are cross the burbs. And I mean by cross the burbs, we're not going from the burbs to downtown Toronto. We're going from the, our home in the burbs to Shoppers Drug Mart in the burbs or over to Loblaws in the burbs. In other words, mass transit does not work well or as well or as efficiently cutting across the burbs so that the mother or father is taking their kids to hockey practice. So they're in one part of the burbs and they're driving to another part of the burbs. You can't run LRT down every street in the burbs. Yeah. It works because of the scale and the and the volumes. It works very well. So I'm the shout out to LRT. It works very well when you're bringing in large people outside the downtown into the downtown and then take them back out. But many many of our trips are not from the the burbs to the downtown. You know, we're running back and forth across the edges of the city, going shopping, going to a sports event, going to a music you know event, and so on. And and for that, that's why we still drive cars because we're a very large country with a very small density, unlike Europe. And so, whenever my friends and advocate, you know, we need more mass transit, you know, we need to because we got to stop driving our cars, and they keep giving me the example of Amsterdam. Well, if you look at the densities, if they did their homework and did their research, they would find out that Europe is running densities of 250 to 550 people per square kilometer. We are not in that scale. They've got 500 million people in a small area that you could dump into southern and eastern Ontario a little bit more. And and we have these enormous distances, 9,000 kilometers across, and only 38 million people, less than in California. So, of course, we're using cars because they go point to point. And you cannot build a multi-billion dollar subway system or metro LRT system that runs down every major arterial across the burbs. It's just not possible. That's why when I hear people saying, oh, we're all going to be taking mass transit, my own city councilors are saying this. They have actually have a city plan. They just adopted it. They want 80% of all the trips in 30 years to be on bicycle or foot, which is just preposterous. Like 100 years walk, ago. <laughs> I'm not going to walk three kilometers at the age of 75 with 10 paper bags to get my groceries at minus 25 in January. And that's just a reality. And, and so we need roads for, A, the cars for all the individuals. Sure, let's go electric. I have no problem there. Let's go autonomous. I have no problem there. But we need the roads for both the cars and the trucks. Anybody goes into the downtown early in the morning. 
some people do, you know, at 6 o'clock, because I've gone downtown to do media interviews sometimes. All the vans and trucks are out there delivering all the daily uh, food and products to all the stores in the downtown. And that won't change. You can't load up and, and, and stock up each Starbucks and each McDonald's and each restaurant uh, taking bags on the subway from a depot out in the burbs to the downtown. You have to use uh, pickup trucks and step vans and that sort of thing. And that's a reality why we need roads. And you have to wonder, post COVID nineteen pandemic, in a Canada as large as uh, in a country as large as Canada, do we really want to be stacked up like cordwood? When you know, example, fly into Ottawa. My goodness, it's wilderness everywhere. Exactly, it is. I, I've lived here. I know Eastern Ontario. I grew up on a farm in Eastern Ontario. There is enormous kilometers of just sheer wilderness. There really is. It's yeah. astonishing. And one more quick point. Scott, is is that the the COVID is ironically going to produce the opposite of what the planners, the the, the municipal planners <laughs> want. That's my point. As, yes, as we push out because we don't want to be in a high rise building in downtown raising children, uh, young people don't want to be, and nobody wants to be. So they're pushing out to the far edges of the burbs and even beyond to the satellite cities that have jumped up outside the green belt of Ottawa. We have a green belt just like Toronto, and uh, they're and and that's going to. Uh, cause the car to become even yet more important because you can't run LRT out to every community that's 50 miles out of Toronto or 50 miles. I'm talking these little villages and communities of mm-hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20, 30,000 people. So the car is going to be more important. So what I'm suggesting is those environmentalists and progressives should, ex- you know, confront reality and say, okay, we're not going to get rid of highways. We're not going to get rid of cars, so let's make them as clean as possible. Let's make them as efficient as possible for sure, but let's get rid of this utopian silliness that we can get rid of highways and get rid of the automobile. Uh, Getting back to the CP rail deal, how much of this rail will be used to transport oil? Uh, That's a very good question you've asked. uh, I'm. I, I got. Be very frank. So, uh, from all the preliminary information I've seen, and I've been studying this since it was the moment it was announced, is I haven't seen any evidence it'll be used for oil. There are a huge number of auto plants, as uh, Jerry Diaz from Unifor reminds us, in in Mexico, and. Apparently, the Kansas City Southern Line, most of its track is in Mexico, and within and it services 90% of all the auto plants, the parts plants, in Mexico. So this is going to be a boon for the further integration of the auto and auto parts industries. I didn't see anything about oil. Certainly, Mexico is a very major oil producer. I believe it's in the top 10. Uh, but I didn't see any evidence that... Um, that they will be used for that. But remember, you can put oil into a rail car. I mean, they have cars that carry oil. And once you have the track, you can put, <laughs> then you have the rolling stock, which is the, the cars that you pull behind the diesel engines. And once you have that, you can put anything on that. You can put cars in that. Uh, you can put the gravel. You can put iron ore. You can put oil. Um, and so if pipelines continue to be, and, and there's increasing um, reporting, of environmental groups going after other pipelines in the states. So if they continue to uh, be successful in shutting down uh, pipelines, uh, what you'll see is, as we've seen thus far, is you'll see it diverting to uh, being transported by rail. And, And rail shipment of oil, by the way, has gone up very dramatically in the northern parts, and I'm talking Canada and the the border states of the U.S. That's why Warren Buffett is grinning. Hmm. Ian Lee has been with us, professor with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about transportation in a COVID-19 world. Ian, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.